You're listening to Payday, the global payroll podcast from CloudPay. And I'm your host, David Barak. Welcome to another episode of the Payday podcast. In today's conversation, we're going to be talking about diversity and how HR and payroll systems accommodate and prepare their organizations for a future where diversity is a byproduct of how companies are run. And I was talking with a diversity leader recently, and she said the greatest thing. She said, um, the golden rule is treat other people how you want to be treated. The inclusion rule is treat other people how they want to be treated. There are times when organizations can get this wrong. We are global and the world is getting smaller, but every country has its own norms and differences. A lot of opportunity to have that conversation with the business and understand if this is what you're trying to go for, let me help you as HR and payroll think about how we actually construct and pay for that job and less about just the, the traditional a job, a person held this job that did X, Y, and Z. If you're already able to pull data for gender splits across locations, age distribution and race, and look at all of those in terms of pay and title, I'd say that you're probably ahead of the average organization, but are you prepared for a broader definition of diversity? To discuss this, I'm joined by Molly Lombardi and Judith Lamb. Molly's been a researcher and an analyst in the HR and payroll space her whole career. Now, she looks at the intersection of HR technology and strategy and how they can help companies unleash human potential. Judith Lamb, she is an international HR practitioner and has been in the technology sector for most of her career. She's currently the VP of HR here at CloudPay. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much, David. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Molly, let's open this up to you first. There are different types of diversity. What are some that organizations are still wrapping their heads around? Thanks so much, David. It's great to be here with you and your audience. I think this is such an important conversation. We traditionally have thought about diversity as things like you know, gender diversity, racial diversity, but we're really broadening this conversation. We're thinking more about the, the breadth of who we can include in our workforce by looking at you know, diversity of thought, diversity of background. We're thinking about different populations, like people who may be moving from incarceration um, in, back into the workforce, people who may be uh, military veterans who are moving from active service um, you know, to, to veteran status, really thinking broadly about who is the, the field of people that we can look at as our workforce and how do we get inclusion and diversity among all those different characteristics, people with mental illness, people with physical disabilities, people, again, with these different backgrounds and ideas, and also uh, culturally and globally, how do we think about this background and think about how can we get diversity across multiple planes that still serve our business needs, but also make sure that we are really getting that breadth of thought and breadth of idea and breadth of productivity to make sure we're casting the widest net when we think about our workforce. Thanks, Molly. Those are some really interesting examples that expand the definition of diversity. I want to get Judith to chime in here as well. So Judith, you're overseeing an HR function for a company with offices in about a dozen different countries. Anything else come to mind when you think about diversity on a global scale? Yes, um, absolutely. And, and, and really just echoing some of the, the comments that Molly has made there. So when we're thinking about diversity as part of a global organization and on a global scale, we're also thinking um, how we create inclusion for um, cultural diversity, different attitudes, approaches, behaviors, um, people coming uh, to us from with different educational levels, whether they're in developed or developing countries, even languages. So when we're thinking diversity on, on the global scale, it's, it's incredibly varied and we're trying to 
create the right inclusive environment for, for such a, a breadth of different backgrounds. I'm glad you mentioned inclusion there, Judith, and we'll come back to that. Um, I have a couple of questions for you both on that front. But first, Molly, since a lot of our listeners are payroll practitioners, how do considerations and definitions of diversity impact their role in systems? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because this is, we often talk about the um, payroll and HR data as a source of truth. And so how do we really understand, we're thinking about all these different dimensions of our workforce. This is where payroll data and is where a lot of that's going to be tracked, the different characteristics, what the pay rates are. So it's really going to be a source of data that's going to be very, very important as we think about measuring and reporting on these things and really operationalizing this idea of diversity and inclusion. So I think it's really important to have them as part of the conversation because it's where, like so many other things, um, you know, the rubber hits the road. When it comes to really measuring uh, the impact of this diversity inclusion goals and being able to have that data is really important. And and, um, and Molly, I completely agree and take that further with when we're thinking about the payroll practitioners um, specifically from an HR perspective, we will often go to that practitioner to help us how we might navigate the requirements, the legal requirements when it comes to making those payroll changes and adjustments for people as we're trying to create um, an environment and a, and a balance for them. Absolutely. Very true, Judith. I remember, I think it was you, Molly, when we spoke offline, you give an example of a concept you called sick at work, almost as another side to the wellness-driven initiatives that the companies have introduced. Can you talk about that a bit more? Absolutely. I think we've heard a lot about wellness recently and wellness and companies. And when I think of wellness, I think of sort of the Iron Man CEO kind of, you know, the, the run the tough mutter every weekend. And that's great. But you know, I'm a person who lives with Parkinson's disease. And I guarantee you, I spend as much time thinking about my exercise and my nutrition, my hydration as any marathoner. <laughs> so how do we think about this new definition of sick at work? How can we think about this new definition of creating an environment where people with different abilities, different needs, different accommodations can be productive? And we had a little bit of a conversation previous uh, when we were preparing for this about it's not just including everyone with every possible point of diversity. It's about the widest net within the context of the people you need to accomplish your goals, right? So it's making sure that you're getting the people who have the right skills, that have the, the information and the the ability to work to do what you're needing to do, but really opening the uh, the doors for them, being able to make sure that we're not discounting, quote unquote, sick at work <laughs> as people who can't be productive. Let's redefine what we're thinking about. Wellness is wellness about getting as many people as possible to be as uh, well as they can be, to be as productive as they can be on a day-to-day -day basis. And, um, and are companies starting to adopt this concept? And if so, how are they helping their employees harmonize the various facets of their lives? I think they are because we're realizing that for one thing, it's just a competitive advantage, right? The, the more ability you have to cast a wider net for people who may be coming from different backgrounds. Um, can you look at, I was talking to um, electric utility and how they're transitioning people from incarceration to being able to work in things like uh, um, uh, lineman jobs, right? People who are um, coming from military service into many other types of uh, you know, um, civilian service. How can we really think about making the, you know, as a competitive advantage, being able to include more people in the, in the people we look to to hire, but also being able to realize that people who can be productive may not be the quote unquote traditional employee, but how we actually think about, um, you know, is there accommodations that maybe, you know, not even that significant, but significant enough that it brings someone's ability to work and contribute much, much higher to the organization. Now, Judith, Molly just mentioned a number of reasons why companies need to get this right. But there's an added nuance in implementing diversity initiatives when dealing with multiple countries, multiple languages and cultures. Can you talk about some of the considerations involved when 
you're doing this globally? Sure. So, um, and obviously, again, I completely echo the the comments that that Molly's making around um, really thinking about your your people, the inclusion, the talent pool, um, and when we're when we're considering diversity. But there are there are times when organisations can get this wrong, um, and one of the things I think we have to be really cautious of is not trying to create a one size fits all type of environment because we are global and the world is getting smaller, but every country has its own norms and differences. So what might be, you know, one organization with a headquarters in one country um, needs to be very cautious about pushing its own ideas around inclusion and diversity on another country that may have a very, very different perspective there because what the resulting impact of that can be is a is more of a position of entrenchment and um and almost then those individuals pushing away from from the inclusion of diversity or almost feeling it's being forced or thrust upon them um and that can that can bring about its own its own consequences um one of the other areas that that, that I've seen um some of the more negative aspects or, or where companies get this wrong is when diversity is seen as the sole remit of HR um and the HR department it, it isn't. It absolutely needs to be part of an organization's DNA, um, filtering from from all aspects of the organization, the, the management teams, the the the, the people um, up and down the company in order to try and get this filtered throughout an organization, not just um, not just the remit of HR departments. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more, Judith. It's so important to have this a part of the ongoing conversation, the ongoing experience of managers and their employees. Managers, we know, are that translation point for everything we do. They're talking about pay. They're talking about benefits. They're talking about the goals of the organization. They're, they're walking the talk and setting the example. So if they're not bought in and they don't understand the point of the, the of diversity and inclusion efforts. That's really going to be where, no matter how great HR payroll is, is measuring these things, it's really not going to make an impact until you get to that point. And I think it is about how do we go, make sure so we're not being so granular in measuring, we're missing the whole person, right? So it's not just about um, you know, uh, making sure we have every aspect of someone documented, but also really understanding what's the, what's the point of that? What are we trying to accomplish with that as well? This gets me thinking about how diversity initiatives became so strongly associated with the HR function. And maybe that's too absolute a statement, but I'm sure it seems like, in most companies at least, HR is driving these initiatives. But the benefits are company-wide across the entire employee population. Uh, and there are plenty of studies that talk about this. So why aren't diversity initiatives more ingrained across the entire company? Well, Judith, I'd be curious to your opinion, but I have a hunch on this, which is people's stuff is messy and it's hard. So why don't we make it someone else's problem, right? <laughs> I think it's very tempting for the business to say, HR can do with it because it's really, really hard. It's got people in it. Um, but I think, you know, all of us have that temptation. We know it's the right thing, but it's really hard to do. And I think until it's entrenched, it can be easy to, easier to say, well, it's HR's department, you know? I mean, Judith, you've been living this, so I'd be curious to your thoughts. But I think part of it is a little bit of, you know, we, we want to do the right thing, but it, it's hard. People, people are messy, you know? I think I can I, again. I would agree with you. I think some of this is is the legacy aspect. So the legacy aspect that um, you, your your HR department is is kind of almost your agony aunt, where you're going to go and speak to about all the problems you have, and then and also a lot of this from a formal perspective, there'll be lots of rules and legislation that HR and payroll practitioners are having to be very co um, concerned about and conscious of. So whenever 
um, any policies coming out or a process or a, a thought process, particularly when it's attributed to our people, um, it, it is in our DNA and it is the way we operate. So I guess it naturally lands in that department, but um, maybe as a, a coach or a counsel or how we could approach this, but certainly not to be spearheading and, and, and be the, the corporate owners of this particular topic. Yeah. Now, Judith, it's definitely interesting to think about the genesis of these initiatives. And today there are, there are a number of other initiatives that sound similar, but are quite different. So let's come back to, uh, let's come back to Molly on this one. I hear the words inclusion, employee experience, and diversity mentioned in the same breath. How are these different and how do they work together? Yeah, I mean, I really think employee experience and inclusion have to be so closely interwoven because really inclusion is what you do every day, right? It's not the things that happen, the, the one check mark you make on the box every year. You know, yes, I'm a diverse in this category. Uh, inclusion is what how it, how it manifests itself every day, which is really what the employee experience is. And I was talking with a diversity leader recently, and she said the greatest thing. She said, um, the golden rule is treat other people how you want to be treated. The inclusion rule is treat other people how they want to be treated. And when she first said that to me, I sort of gobsmacked, and I sort of thought for a minute, and I said, you know, I throw my husband's birthday party I want every year, right? <laughs> Which is sort of a, you know, a funny story, but it's like, you think about how often we give people what we want as opposed to what we really listen to understand what they want. And I think that's what, that's what uh, when we talked about employee engagement in the past decade, um, we really talked about how to create an environment where that person feels valued and rewarded and you're speaking their love language and speaking their language of reward. It's really very similar when we think about inclusion, which is not just the once a year, you know, do you check this box? Really, wow, what's the day-to-day -day experience? Are we speaking them in a way and including them in a way that's meaningful to them um so i have seen in some regions where in the past um I mean, we, we're talking about uh health at work or sickness at work well in some regions being sick at work would be seen as a weakness and something that you wouldn't want to put your hand up to and and i guess that would almost be the same for, for mental health issues as well around the stigmas around this but then I have seen with more modern and particularly, I guess, giving some credit to the, the millennium generation, a real change in this, in some of these behaviors. So, so where that may have been a stigma, I, I am seeing some changes. So um, that to me is showing good signs that we're seeing more, more diversity and in inclusion. And in another country I can think of, I won't name it specifically, but they may not have the same level of legislation that we might have in the UK or in the US for um, sexual orientation, for example, which when we're thinking about diversity is, is one of the, the areas we think about. Yet um, within that country, there are no stigmas around sexual orientation, regardless of the fact there's no particular legislation around it. And certainly with, with the companies I've worked in, where they're trying to really push this idea of um, inclusive cultures. Um, that's where that has been successful in spite of maybe what be considered a, a, a political or a, a cultural norm. Yeah, and I think it's so important, Judith, and I'm sure you've seen this, is it's not about, there's not a right answer to any of these sort of uh, spectrums of diversity. It's really about asking the right questions and making sure that we're being sensitive to both the um, sort of group norms and cultural norms and geographic norms, as well as our uh, true to our company DNA, as you put it. And so I really think it's that finding that balance. It's not about the, the right answer, but it's about these are the right questions and topics we need to be thinking about being true to our, ourselves as an organization and also the, the places where we operate and the people we operate with. 
I recently came across a Deloitte study that looked at how attitudes towards workplace diversity were represented by different generations. And what stood out to me in that study, and, and let's acknowledge that these are generalizations, but in that study, most boomers and Gen Xers looked at workplace diversity as a matter of fairness and equalness. But millennials looked at it as fairness, equalness, and also as an essential ingredient for innovation. I think there is some truth to that, not necessarily that it just sits within that generation, but there's almost a, a concept or an idea that, that this is this is the norm. This is um, rather than um, stereotyping, putting people in boxes, it's more a case of, uh, I don't know, is it a, 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 one, a one world together? I think there is a, a sense perhaps that this generation has pushed forward that we don't need to pigeonhole or stereotype, but it's just the natural thing to, to, to be more of an inclusive society. Maybe this is the one benefit of the millennial trend towards the participation ribbon, right? <laughs> we often criticize the millennial organization, but everyone gets a ribbon for participating. But maybe that has actually opened their eyes to say, yes, we are inclusive. We can be inclusive of people of different abilities on the soccer field or different, you know, um, attitudes towards a writing competition or something like that. Maybe that, that is maybe the, the, the benefit of the participation ribbon is we actually have broadened this generation's thinking to say we can include everyone, you know, that's something I hadn't thought about before. But that's really interesting. Yeah. It's interesting to see how a generation might be pushing beyond the basics of needing diversity towards this ultimate outcome and benefits. But let's get back to HR and payroll here. I'll, I'll pose this question to both of you. How do organizations operationalize diversity? Yeah, I think it's really where, you know, the, the technology comes into play. I was being interviewed recently for uh, an article on work-life balance, which I'm not sure if I believe in, but <laughs> we were having the conversation and the gentleman who was interviewing me had just come off of another interview and he said he was speaking with a woman who was, you know, a high flyer, really, you know, top flight executive, moved quickly up the ranks at a Fortune 100 company and she went out on maternity leave and while she was out, she was thinking about what do I really want to do when I go back from maternity leave? How, what's my relationship with work? How do I want to find this you know, quote-unquote balance? So she looked at her own skills. She looked at what the organization needed, and she came back to her bosses with a proposal and said, listen, I really want to come back to work here. I'm really committed to this, but here's how I'd like to sort of balance my portfolio of work and life and the things I think I contribute. And her bosses listened to her, and they came up with a great plan to you know, adopt most of what she said to move it forward. And he said, isn't that a great story? And it is, and it's an important story to remember that we can stand up and say, as men or women or any other you know, um, diverse characteristic that we can have these conversations, but also the privilege bells were ringing in the back of my head saying, you know, this woman probably had some um, you know, potential other um, places she could envision herself working. She might've had some um, monetary resources in case they said no and she needed to take more time off or things like that. But what about the mom working at uh, Starbucks or Burger King, right? They may have a need to reevaluate their construct of work. They may have a need to, you know, on Tuesday, every other Tuesday, they need to work at different hours because of their childcare situation or whatever. They might not have the language or the strategy to be able to approach their boss with that. Even if they did, they, their boss might not be able to respond effectively. Even if they wanted to, even if they were empathetic as, a, as an employer and as a boss, they don't have the tools to say, yeah, I can have you be regular hours except for every other Tuesday or whatever the case might be. And so I 
think that's where technology really comes to help us operationalize this. It helps give us tools to say, you know, we have the strategy and the mindset around it, but it gives us tools for employees to say, this is what I need to be productive here, and employers to say, this is what we can accommodate, whether it's from a schedule flexibility, from a actual accommodation flexibility, things like that. And I think that's where it's really important. That's how we use the technology to sort of democratize and uh, operationalize these ideas about diversity and inclusion, actually putting them into action and giving them a way to listen to each other and communicate with each other without taking some of the emotion out of it, being able to really respond in a very respectful way. Molly, I think you and I seem to be in agreement through most of this conversation, but I think what we're really getting into is we're talking about diversity and inclusion, but it's down to the why. What is it the organization is going to benefit from diversity and inclusion and and how is the individual going to benefit from this? So um, as you've pointed out before, just kind of the the tick box exercise because a a, a government um, requires us to to have certain um, um, markers or, or do these things, but actually because an organization understands the benefit of why we would want to behave in a certain way and the positivity and the the melting pot of ideas and and, and people from different backgrounds, um, whether that be the, as it was talked before, the education, the ethnicity, the, the country, the language, but that melting pot of ideas and innovation comes from having a diverse workforce, not just because we've been asked to create a diverse workforce. And also, I think some of it just comes down to plain old competitive advantage, right? If you're more inclusive, you have a bigger world uh, world stage to be able to draw your employees from, right? So I think it's also, um, even if you're not bought into the whole um, good for humanity piece of it, you also, from a very clinical perspective, saying we can actually hire more people if we're more inclusive. We can actually, if we broaden who we think of as people who can be successful at work here, we actually open up our talent pool more broadly, too. You can measure the tick boxes, but does that really impact your business, right? Um, you know, we talked about this before, you know, even using myself as an example, I can check the disabled box, I can check the gender art box, I can check the age group box, but is that my value to the organization or is my value to the organization my ability to contribute to innovation or to productivity? So I think it's about that balance of saying, yes, there are some tick boxes and there are some things that we need to adhere to either through legislation or through cultural norms, but also let's think more broadly beyond that as well, measure, be able to measure and think about other measures of the impact of that diversity and inclusion beyond just the tick box. So I wonder, Judith, if at some point we're going to get to definitions of diversity that are really unique to different companies, unique to different countries and regions, right? Because again, I think one of you mentioned it earlier, diversity is about the radius of people you influence, the radius of customers you want to have and employees. It's not just this big blanket statement. So how do systems and payroll practitioners then work in that kind of environment where maybe you're a global practitioner and you have a system that captures certain diversity metrics in some countries and not in others? So how do you really build capabilities in your environment and in your systems to accommodate a more fluid definition of diversity and more flexible definition of diversity around regions? Really, I think we're getting back into some of the why. Why do we want to create that system of record? And and actually, we're, we're talking about HR and payroll. So from the HR and the payroll perspective, where we're looking at kind of the strategic requirements within an organization and then the more tactical elements um, to actually carry out those those needs um, and strategies of a, of a business. But 
I think another way of looking at it is is also, and I think the earlier part of your your question there, David, was around the, the changing requirements of diversity. And Molly hit on mental health issues earlier. So we could take that as a topic. It's something that um, do we want to look at other ways we can, do we want to capture this? I don't know. Um, do we want to, though, maybe have... Um, wellness and health programs that may support people in the workplace who do have mental health issues as, as people are more willing to step forward and and say that they they need the help and support and then what we can look at is um how we how how those wellness and those support programs are being used and then as a as an hr practitioner we can then work out well um this is this is perhaps something that's a benefit to the organization we can see how this population or this area or this country or department is benefiting from these additional programs that we're putting in to support to support the company. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think it really is, you know, nobody wants to raise their hand to be counted for the mental illness tick box, right? But we do want to say, as an organization, are we being more productive? Are we reducing our absenteeism, things like that? What are some of the consequences potentially? And I think that's where it starts to get interesting to say that's sort of the, the um, the different points of view that are involved, the, the employer, the employee, the HR, you know, all understand that they have different sort of benefits from that. Yes, from a reporting perspective, we need to be able to talk about some of these things. From a managerial perspective, we need to make sure we have the right talent. And from an individual perspective, we need to feel respected and and um, and have the support we need. So how do we really make sure that we're, the things we're defining, the things that we're accommodating, actually are, are, are ticking the box, so to speak, for all those different populations? Now, I'm sure the answer to this will vary by region, but do you think it makes sense for companies to eventually move from reporting on diversity metrics to reporting on employee experience and inclusion metrics and initiatives instead? I think you almost have to. I mean, it's the difference between um, you think about um, labor cost versus productivity, right? It's the difference between like what is the the fact the labor cost is your facts and your numbers, right? Your diversity might be the facts and the numbers, but the impact of you know what else what else was a part of that was about the right combination of people that cost that delivered more productivity. Um, if you look at the labor cost, if you're looking at this, is the right wellness programs or the right uh, accommodation. Um, uh, responses able to help us deliver productivity. And I think that's what it comes down to. Um, at the end of the day, we we operate businesses. I mean, you know, there may be some not for profits with the, on the phone, but there are also, um, I'm sure, plenty of for profit companies. So how do we make sure that we are accommodating the right things, but also understanding we are businesses, right? And so how do we make sure that we are doing the right thing for our employees, but also in a way that it helps us move our business forward? And I think it is a win win. I think it's very very possible to make both of those a win. But I think it's it's important to acknowledge that those are two criteria that we're allowed to have together. You know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Do you think that'll impact systems as well? The way we're reporting, um, I'm, not, I'm not even clear on what the key metrics are for employee engagement and inclusion in organizations, right? Because I think they vary greatly. There are certainly forms people fill out, there are feedbacks that companies collect. But, you know, is, is there even a future where I'm looking at my HR application as a practitioner or as, or as a payroll practitioner and I can pull up a list of, um, employees that are most engaged based on the data points that are in my system, right? Not based on anecdotal information I have. I, I think about it from the perspective of CRM systems, right? You, as a salesperson, can pull up your territory and see who are your most engaged prospects and customers. It's not the same for employees, but is there something like that coming from a, the technology side? 
I mean, I think at the end of the day, that isn't that what we've always wanted, right? We've always wanted to be able to understand who's our most profitable employees, right? Who's our most productive employees? Who's adding value to the organization? Um, I think the ability to measure engagement is why I've had a job for the past 10 or 15 years, but because <laughs> we haven't quite nailed it yet. But I think it is at the end of the day, um, engagement, accommodation, inclusion, all this really only matters if we are also accomplishing our business goals. I mean, you know, and so I think it's important to realize that those, again, those are those are important to come together. And I think it is, we need, need the data to help us with that. Because as humans, we're very, very bad often at judging um, what actually is achieving the outcome we've achieved. I mean, if you've, I've studied the world of assessments and things like that. When you look at the data often, the thing we thought was driving the performance may not be. So really being able to use that data and say, like, what, how can we use, um, you know, use our analysis, use our statistics, be able to go back and understand. So I think that's where the data will become important, the historical data will become important. And then to your point, David, once we understand the historical data, how do we use that to project forward? Because I think it really, the point of this all is, yes, to include people, yes, to broaden our, our, our scope of who we include in our workforce, but also in service of the things we need to accomplish uh, within our businesses. So I think that's the balance we're trying to strike is how to use the data to help us make that win-win for both sides, but also be able to do it a little more um, uh, efficiently with the, with the data we have. I mean, and you know exactly. We we can't we can't rely on um, this all being anecdotal. We need to make decisions as an organisation, but based on as many facts as we can we can pull together. Um, you know, an organisation a year ago or two years ago may have thought they didn't have a gender pay gap, but the data is going to tell them that chances are they probably do. So we need to we need to act on. Um, more than just our instinct and anecdotal information but we do need the data and we do need the facts as we as we work towards driving forward on these types of topics and as we all know payroll data is some of those validated um deep data we have in our organization so i think it's a really good place to make sure we're getting at least capturing the right things so we can move forward with some of the analysis and, and getting better in the future yeah there's lots of opportunities these days to make data-driven decisions which brings me back to the payroll practitioner who today is sitting on a lot of rich data, but may not be able to access and synthesize it all in one place. So how do payroll practitioners get proactive about surfacing this information to allow their companies to inform things like job architecture, role definition, and maybe even team structures? Well, I'll just start, Judith, and feel free to chime in, but I think some of it will also come down to understanding, I think the payroll data is we're really going to be able to actually rethink what jobs are. You know, we, think about, we talk about the uberization of lots of different things. And I think this idea of, oh, you're absolutely right, how do we get the people who can um, be productive in a role? And I think that the payroll data can really help us understand you know, and actually rethink what jobs are. So you might be able to think at different cost points for parts of a job a different uh, than other parts of a job. So I think part of it is being able to understand the business goals, be able to look at the data and say, is there a new way of thinking about how we construct these jobs, how we construct the way we pay, how we construct and understand the worth of different accomplishments or, you know, achieving particular um, outcomes in our business and how we compensate for that. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to have that conversation with the business and understand if this is what you're trying to go for, let me help you as HR and payroll think about how we actually construct and pay for that job and less about just the, the traditional a job, a person held this job that did X, Y, and Z, but how do we help understand what's X, Y, and Z accomplishing and how can we rethink how that might be structured and paid for within the organization? Does that make sense, Judith? Am I out of the limb? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, HR, HR and payroll, again, can't, can't be mutually exclusive. So, so as um, an HR practitioner might be working with a business and how they can actually um, implement some of these concepts. It might be when we were talking about something as basic as a, the sickness at work. So the reality is 
do we have to make some workplace adjustments for that person? It might be time. So then we have to work really, really closely with our payroll practitioners about how we actually do that and what's the framework around that. So intermittent time is one of the biggest challenges, right? Absolutely. So and then also if that person's um, moving to to different hours, um, then is there going to be are there going to be overtime consequences of that? And then there's all the the on costs of making these types of changes. So these are always very strategic decisions, and they, one can't be made in isolation of the other. So if we had to finish this episode with some word of advice to our listeners, how do they get started? How do they look at their existing data set? How do they look at their existing definitions of diversity and make sure that they're looking three years down the road and anticipating some of the changes they may need to introduce to their processes, their systems, or even their own skill set and, and how they think about their role? Yeah. Well, David, you know, my starting point is always pain, right? What's painful in your business? Because it's much easier to get, I think, um, con uh, consensus around a solution if there's a, a common pain point. But, uh, you know, think about your business. Is it about cost? Is it about um, innovation? Is it about productivity? What in your business is the, the pain point that you're going to be facing in the next three years? And then think about how diversity and inclusion may impact that. So what if you are having trouble, you know, getting enough people into your pipeline? Well, maybe you need to rethink, you know, how do we accommodate people who maybe, you know, again, think about people coming from incarceration, coming from uh, active service in the military, coming from different uh, diversity backgrounds from a mental or physical illness point of view. Um, you know, so maybe it's that where you need to think of. If it's around cost, maybe it's, again, how do we use the data we have to understand um, how we can maybe rethink jobs. So I think the important thing is to look at, you know, what is that sort of common pain point that you might be able to go after and then really making sure that your systems are robust enough to be able to look at your data, capture data in the, in the, the now to be able to be able to look back into analysis, but also look forward to help your business move, move towards those challenges in the future. Absolutely. Judith, do you, do you want to add anything or the thumbs up is going to be it? <laughs> I think, I think Molly has summarized that perfectly. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Payday Podcast. This podcast is a production of CloudPay and our incredible team that's focused on helping global payroll professionals. To listen to more episodes, visit us at paydaypodcast.net or look for us wherever you get your podcast.